On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I really couldn't be better. Living the dream. How are you, Tim? (laughs) Same, same. And uh, today here, we're back talking about the Parker Report in the disappearance of Maura Murray. So this is back on our Missing Maura Murray series. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we did an episode called Collision Report Part 1, and this is going to be Part 2. And again, there was a collision report that was done by a fellow named Daniel Parka, and he's a professional person, and uh, he did a collision report for Maura Murray's car based on the damage, based on the road, and a lot of interesting things. So... Check out part one of this little mini-series here if uh, if you want to dive real deep into this. And a good place to comment would be YouTube. You can find the video there at Missing CSM. And you mentioned that Daniel Parker was a professional person. Uh, yeah, he, he is a professional uh, collision consultant. He owns or owned uh, Parker Collision Consultants, and that was uh, local in Massachusetts. And he did this work pro bono for the Murray family to bring some answers or maybe a little bit of closure to at least the accident that happened in North Haverhill, New Hampshire, that Mora was a part of in 2004. Yeah, and it's kind of difficult to say how important uh, this is. I mean, obviously, it's it's great to see, um, but it's really sort of hard to tell what's important about this report at this point. So this is why we're trying to go through it point by point and sort of talk it out. It's like back in the olden days. That's right. As we were reminded to in the YouTube comments. That's right. Lisa Lisa Gibson says, uh, I really like it when it's just the two of you talking about the case, getting back to basics. 350 Mac says, it's a steady grade from the Swiftwater store and levels out before the corner. The corners before the store is actually sharper, in my opinion. I guess that's that's true. Yeah, I would go ahead and agree with that. And we've said that before, even uh, traveling during the day up there on dry roads in the summer, those roads can kind of get away from you and coming upon all of those bends and sharp corners, even before that turn that she lost control of the car at is, uh, you know, not not like super dangerous, but you got to pay attention. 
Absolutely. And uh, Melissa here says, I thought the videos of searches right after the there were snowbanks in front of the trees, which makes sense for February. And uh, Socks says, and black ice because of it, she didn't hit a tree. Jeep Stuff says the damage on her car was not caused by a snowbank. Any body shop would tell you the same. And then Socks replies, and it wasn't a tree. Snowbanks would have stopped her before hitting the trees unless she was going fast, which in that case there would have been more damage and the car would have been wouldn't have been in the position that it was. Maybe she rear-ended someone. So that kind of gets into a little bit of the heart of the debate here um, about the accident, doesn't it, Lance? Yeah, the uh, damage that is on the front of the car and where that all occurred. And again, we've we've said things like this a number of times. Weird things happen when you get into an accident. And who knows what she could have hit as she careened or skidded into that snowbank, into that, that ditch area, that little ravine. We, we always talk about the those two major trees, like the larger trees, the more sturdy trees there, the one that had the ribbon on it. There were a bunch of little trees there, too. I mean, you never know. There could have been several little trees, one one medium-sized tree that, that hit right there. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it was the, the bumper of a bus or a guardrail or she rear-ended somebody. It really just could be a, a, the, a freak way the car angled as it went into the ravine, as it hit the snowbank, or it hit like a smaller tree. Yeah, based on our our last episode, we sort of broke down the part about a tree being angled. And uh, if I were just reading the report, uh, I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's just an angled tree. I don't know. Since we recorded that, I've been kind of looking around at at bent trees, I guess. And there are a lot of them. There are just, I'm looking at one right now at the window. Um, So there are a lot of weird shapes in trees. But having been to that scene, Lance, I don't think there are any really like that. Um, Now, if there was one like completely slanted like that and and you knew the car goes down to like a two-foot ditch as we noted in the first part uh maybe that would have been the case but i as far as i know lance those those trees are pretty much all uh mostly mostly straight up i'm sure there's a bit uh of a degree angle to them but it's not like they're completely bent and i guess my ultimate question is when do you eliminate the importance of that damage happening there or somewhere else. If she had hit a guardrail or rear-ended the back of a truck that had a tow hitch on it and that's what made the damage to the hood, does that really lead to her disappearance? You know, did the person follow her or something and, and then abduct her? And if so, I mean, there's no account of anybody other than Butch stopping to to talk to her. There's no account of anybody stopping on the road in the immediate vicinity, according to uh, Butch and according to Faith and according to most of the uh, information that's publicly documented. So I I don't know, you know, what does that tell us if it didn't happen there? Does it tell us anything? Yeah, I think to the naked eye, the damage to the car, to me anyway, looks like, um, you know, it looks like it could have been a trailer hitch or something like that, right? Um, Because it looks like it comes sort of down onto the hood. Um, But as we're about to learn here in the the Parker report, um, I don't think that's possible that she rear-ended something and then the car ended up somewhere else. You know, I I just think the... uh, it seems like he's Parker here has proven that 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 isn't the case. So, back to your question, uh, no, I don't. I don't know. It, it probably isn't going to determine much anyway. I guess if it was determined that 
the damage happened on a trailer hitch, then we could be looking around for trailer hitches. But it doesn't seem like that's what where this is leading. Parka here writes on his report in page 13, the Saturn's sensing and diagnostic module recorded two events associated with this case. The first event recorded a non-deployment event, which was basically wakes up the unit, but was not significant enough to command an airbag deployment. This type of event would be consistent with hitting a pothole or a mailbox post, or in this case, entering into the ravine that flows along the eastbound shoulder. He says the data recorded indicated a change in forward velocity of 0.22 miles per hour in a period of 6.25 milliseconds, which is six one hundredths of a second. That is interesting. Um, Thinking about that, so first event, which is non-deployment, is a smaller impact, which could have been her entering the ravine, and then he goes on to say the second event recorded was a deployment event, which commands an airbag deployment due to a significant event. The problem with this event, he says, was something occurred to the electrical system of the Saturn at the time of the impact, which resulted in missing data. So that's unfortunate that something happened to the electrical system so he doesn't have that data that breaks down the time frame or the change in speed like he does in the first event. He goes on and says, however, it did record the time between non-deployment and deployment. This was recorded as 0.02 seconds. Which is really important. Yeah, almost as good, I guess, right? Yes, because now you can tell um, 0.02 seconds is nothing. 0.02 seconds is here to here. You know, it's that quick. Right. Uh, probably her entering that ravine, then hitting the tree. He says if the operator were traveling the speed of 20 miles per hour, as suggested by the speed limit, the two commands would have occurred six inches apart relative to the ground. In other words, a non-deployment event occurred when the Saturn was involved in a small impact and then immediately struck a second object approximately six inches away and within two-tenths of a second. If traveling 30 miles per hour, the two commands would have occurred 11 inches apart. And to continue, he says the Saturn would also need to be moving at the time the two commands were recorded. If the Saturn were stopped and an unknown vehicle or object of significant force struck the Saturn, only one command would have been recorded. To have both commands occur nearly simultaneously as they did, the Saturn would need to be moving in a forward projection under its own propulsion. The electrical system would also need to be activated for the SDM unit to record. So this means that she wasn't parked and someone backed into her, or maybe she wasn't parked and something fell on the car. She, I know it sounds really obvious, but this all occurred almost simultaneously, which means most of that damage you can probably assume happened right there. It definitely is connected to the airbags. So the damage on the car is definitely connected to the airbags is what we're learning. Um, I guess one question, Lance, is could a car be driven if the airbags have been deployed? You know, Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think it's most likely that the damage and all that happened right there, as we talked about. But is it possible to drive a car with the airbags having been dis deployed? And is, I don't know, maybe we'll go on and find that that is disproven in this report, too. Well, we know after the accident, she did try to start the car. Uh, people, neighbors had reported seeing the um, reverse lights 
turning on. So maybe it is possible to drive a vehicle after the airbags are deployed. It just probably wouldn't be very straightforward. It probably wouldn't be very easy. It'd probably be quite distracting. Okay, well, not to throw a wrench into it, but just a little bit of research. It seems like it's not illegal to drive with your airbags deployed, and I guess it seems possible, but it, as you said, it, it does seem highly unlikely, and I sure don't want to add any more complications here. So I'm going to go ahead and say I'm, I'm definitely moving toward all the damage happened at the scene right there. Now, regarding the damage to the Saturn, he has a section here in the report that says... However, the damage is not consistent with striking a tree, which has a perfectly vertical facade from the ground up. The damage is more consistent with a less acute angle of interaction between the two. If the front of the Saturn were down in the ravine, this would now change the horizontal pitch of the vehicle from a horizontal plane consistent with the pavement and place the front end of the vehicle more at an angle to the vertical facade of a tree. Or, if the angle of the tree were more of an acute angle, the angle to which these two engage could now be explained. And he has a picture, there's a photo of the, the trees, the ravine, and the road, and it shows the acute angle um, where, the, uh, where the tree with the blue ribbon is. If you're looking at, at it facing, looking towards the, um, the weathered barn as if looking at her car coming coming at you. So that's that's the angle he's speaking of. And he continues and says this would allow the finite damage to the core fins occur. However, the physical damage to the vehicle's hood and its configuration are still a question. So everything right there, I know that sounded like a like a a bit of a convoluted statement. Everything he said right there was more or less her car is on the plane of the road. It encounters the angles in which occur from the road to the ravine to where the trees are planted. And then the angle of the tree, all of that is consistent except for the damage on the hood. Okay. And then he goes on. He says the damage associated with the collision is also on the driver's side. The Saturn would need to commence some sort of clockwise rotation before going off the roadway to have the driver's front corner leading the way to impact. This is consistent with the police diagram shown below where telltale signs of vehicle rotation are evident from the tire impressions drawing. Right, and that's a reference to the police diagram of the accident scene that night where the car is facing the wrong way. So if we're talking about that damage that's on the driver's side of the car right above the headlight, it would not have occurred with her driving in the direction she was driving when she went off the road. As her car spins around, what he's saying is perhaps it comes to a rest by hitting something when the car is facing the opposite direction. Driver's side facing the woods. Back to the YouTube comments for a moment, Lance. New England's Insomniac Theater says if you Google tow hitch damage, it matches closer to the indent on the corner of Morris Hood, much better than any tree or snowbank. This person goes on to say investigator Frank Kelly said for years, Morris damage looked like it was from a tow hitch. There's a few replies there. T. Smith says whatever caused the dent in the hood wasn't from hitting a tree. It's so obvious. I'm not sure why people aren't talking about it more. And back to the report, Lance. 
Parka does a close examination. He says, on close examination of the hood damage, the width was 7 inches with a maximum depth of 9 inches. The overall height was 4 inches and angled at 45 degrees off perpendicular. This was no fracture of the paint or foreign material embedded. The overall damage was not smooth, but rather uneven and did not contain the classic geometrical shape of a tree's outer facade. So what that tells me is if she had hit maybe a trailer hitch, like people have been commenting or speculating on, at the speed in which to cause that damage, I would imagine that there would have been some paint chipped or some sort of fracture in the paint, like he says, which there wasn't. The the outer damage... And he says the overall damage was not smooth, but rather uneven and did not contain the classic geometrical shape of a tree's outer facade as well. So you don't have that, you know, what tree is shaped like that is what he's saying. This is, I don't know what this is consistent with. It could be consistent with a, a rock or something. I have no idea. You know, it, it, it is sort of checking off some of the boxes that I, that I've speculated about myself, like a, like a trailer mm-hmm. hitch or a, um, a, a guardrail. But um, yeah. looking at this, damage closely yeah, it's it's got a few dimples in it it's got you know a major dent and then a couple of smaller dents all kind of clustered in that area and it kind of goes up to a point yeah it's it's uh certainly doesn't really make sense to my brain um yeah parka goes on says the entire hood was pushed back two inches and buckled in the middle due to impact this two inch movement also resulted in the radiator upper support being bent and the headlight assembly displaced backwards However, the aforementioned bumper and inner core were not pushed back to the same extent. If they were pushed back to have a perfectly vertical inline damage with the hood, the front bumper and core would need to be displaced 7 to 9 inches. But this was not the case. As aforementioned, it appears the intrusion by the unknown object and its interaction with the Saturn was at an angle less acute than 90 degrees. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Right. So he, what he's saying that the uh, the unknown object and its interaction with the Saturn was at an angle uh, less acute than 90 degrees. So just picture a 90 degree angle and take that upper, uh, take the upper plane and just tilt it down. You know, you're, you're decreasing that angle, uh, that 90 degrees. So that's interesting when you think about the road in relation to what she hit in relation to how her car was angled, the damage on the hood there is right there at the top, right above the headlight. There's nothing on the bumper and there's nothing underneath that. So whatever hit her car, whatever she hit was at an angle that was tighter than 90 degrees because there was nothing below that to damage the bumper. 
because if you look at the picture from 2007 the bumper is not damaged but the the hood that point and then the hood itself is like pushed back two inches Parker goes on, the principal direction of force of the frontal impact was negative 5 to 10 degrees off the vehicle's fixed coordinate system being the physical property impacted to the vehicle during the impulse as a result of being involved in a collision. As aforementioned, the majority of the dynamic collapse occurred in the area of the driver's front headlamp assembly with a slight shifting of the front overhang to the passenger side. The other two impacts were minute in size, and as compared to the damage noted above, the secondary dents did not contain any fractures of the paint and or contain any foreign material. One was located to the passenger side while the second was located in the middle of the hood. The depth of both indents was so minuscule, measurement was difficult, if not impossible, to measure. So I wonder if that's even related. Hmm. Could be unrelated. Uh, he's talking about tiny secondary dents that did not contain any fractures of the paint or foreign material that was so minute it was almost impossible to measure. Kind of reminds me of acorns falling on your car if you're parked mm-hmm. under a tree and you get those little like dimple type dents that are you know you don't really notice until the sun hits it just right. So I don't know if that was um, related to the accident. And then she has some damage on the bumper here that he describes. On the rear bumper, several superficial marks were observed. These marks were whitish in color with horizontal striations on the driver's side rear corner. It is unknown as to whether these marks are related to this case or were the result of an early incident. Um, It looks like someone had rubbed against the bumper of her car with, with their car, to be honest. Yeah, and it's blue, so it does look like a blue vehicle. Um, so, yeah, or maybe maybe it bumped in something at the gas station or something. But, yeah, definitely something minor, um, probably completely unrelated to uh, why Mora's Saturn ended up that corner. I think every single car I've ever owned has that mark on it. <laughs> and then Parker goes on to talk about the exhaust system. He says, It was relayed to us that there was mention of a rag or cloth as having been located within the tailpipe of the Saturn's exhaust at the time of the police investigation. During our examination of the vehicle, we found the muffler and tailpipe had been bent backwards, or rather now facing towards the front of the vehicle and encased in earthen material. It is more likely than not this new damage of bending the pipe and muffler was associated with moving the vehicle throughout the back fields of the barracks. The tailpipe was extremely corroded and dropped off the muffler with little or no force when we attempted to move it out from under the vehicle. Wet earthen material was packed within the pipe. The earthen material may now contain any leftover evidence of rag and or cloth, which was mentioned as having been placed in the pipe just prior to collision. It was clear. Well, he says prior to the collision, huh? Why does he say that? Interesting. Well, I guess he says it was mentioned, was mentioned as having been placed in the pipe just prior to the collision. Huh. To my knowledge, that's not a fact. Um, Interesting. But, But it would have been a fact that it was mentioned to him, though. He goes on, it was clear from the condition of the vehicle at the time of the inspection, no care was taken to preserve any type of evidence associated with a rag or cloth within the pipe and or the condition of the tailpipe itself. Any evidence throughout the entire vehicle was now also compromised due to the condition of the Saturn and nature in which it was secured. 
yeah, this speaks to the handling of the car, right? I mean, you can see this happening. You can see them moving the car. They hook it up on on a tow truck or or some some vehicle, and they drag it from from the from the rear, and that's what fills the tailpipe with the uh, wet earthen material that he's talking about, and that's what bends it back facing the front. Uh, they just didn't have any care when they moved it, and it they were just dragging it across. Uh, dragging it across the earth until they brought it to the new location. And they ended up basically tearing the muffler off. Yeah. And I think the car was moved a few times and obviously it probably depends on what kind of tow truck would have done that. If it was a flatbed, probably this wouldn't have happened. I would, I would suggest. Um, But also Lance going back to 2013. Now, when we uh, saw Morris car at the troop F barracks, in uh, December of 2013, we we noted that there was no um, tailpipe at all, and we had assumed that it was taken into evidence. Uh, I guess now here in 2021, we learned that that's not exactly the case. They probably took that muffler and tailpipe and examined it. Um, he's got some pictures here of what the earthen material looks like. A piece of the tailpipe. It's all corroded. It's all. It's you know. It's falling apart that that was probably tossed right into the dumpster that Morris car was next to prior to 2013 obviously yeah well hopefully the uh law enforcement still has the rag i would bet they do um hopefully they do and moving on parka goes into automotive part he says within the vehicle two automotive parts were observed one was a broken part which had a round connecting port with a metal retaining ring the part also contained a Chrysler logo embossed on a flat portion. We could not locate any type of reference or part number. Chrysler, eh? Okay, let's wrap our head around this. There was a part in her car with the uh, Chrysler logo on it. It's not really clear what part this was in the car, but Chrysler did not own Saturn. I believe General Motors owned Saturn. And this part could have been something that was installed from, say, a junkyard. Like if if the car, if this part was broken in the car, but a similar one was in another car that was a Chrysler and it could fit in the Saturn, that, that might happen. I mean, sort of Frankenstein it together with uh, junkyard parts. What does that part look like to you? Well, it appears broken. So the, there are two pictures there. And the first picture, I actually kind of thought it was the steering wheel. And of course, we're kind of looking at a fuzzy version of this report, but um, kind of looks like a steering wheel from the distance. But I can see now that it's not. Um, oh, you know I, what that is? I have no idea. What is it? You know what that looks like to me? That looks like the piece behind, say, the mirror, whether it's the interior uh, mirror or maybe a door mirror. But it doesn't look like the piece that you clip the mirror part on. And and it then it attaches, but it's so hard to say because this looks like it was kind of broken off and the picture was taken in another location. Like it looks like it might be sitting on top of the car, right? Yeah, it does look like the picture was taken where the item was sitting on top of the car. Uh, I can't tell what, what it looks like, um, but the, the interior mirror was missing in, in the Saturn. So that's some something of a, a suspect. But again, the Chrysler uh, logo on it would would suggest that that was a replaced part if it was ever in place on the Saturn. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So hypothetically speaking, whoever is driving the Saturn prior to this accident at some point 
breaks the mirror or somebody, you know, drives by and, and knocks the driver's side, you know, the side door mirror off or the passenger side door mirror off. Um, and then they, they get a spare part from a junkyard and that happens to be Chrysler, but it fits. But then it's broken and just found randomly in her car. Right, right. But then it breaks again, you know, I, yeah. I, and who knows, right? I, I was just speaking from the... Um, <laughs> from the standpoint of this was a spare part that was in place until this accident and it broke again. But this could have been, heck, this could have been somebody's broken something from one of her friend's cars and, and they just like, she was there and they fixed it and she tossed it in her car. Yeah. No telling that this was, this was ever part of Morris car. I mean, one thing that occurred to me is, I mean, obviously the car was sitting was sitting around a uh, tow yard. It was, it was sitting around a uh, mechanic shop there for a little while. I mean, it could be just a random piece that ended up in the car somehow, but I don't know everything with this case. You just got to ask the questions, I guess. And that's a good point. It was sitting around for a while before this report was even done. This could have been something that was on the ground that someone thought was related to the car before they moved it and they threw it in. Uh, same thing with the other part. The second part was undamaged and appears to be a type of coin holder with a lid there's a part number on it, but no automotive manufacturing symbol. Again, could have been something that was on the ground before they moved it. It could have been something that she picked up somewhere uh, from someone else's car and used it as a coin holder. All right. And vehicle fluids on an examination of the engine compartment. We found the oil level, transmission, and brake reservoir contained adequate lubrication. The trunk of the vehicle had several full quarts of SAE10W20 motor oil in a case which originally contained approximately 12 bottles. A bottle of windshield fluid was also evident. The battery was dead but still connected and the fuel gauge indicated a full tank, Lance. A full tank. Hmm. I wonder a if that's full a full tank. Exactly. Full tank, not, yeah. not 3 quarters full. No, it's it's actually that's that's a bit surprising, isn't it? Yeah, I would uh, I would uh... I'm quite surprised, to be honest, that yeah, the, maybe it was a faulty uh, gas gauge at this point. I mean, because uh, he's looking at the car and the car's not even turned on. So I don't know how the needle's at full. Yeah, when we looked at the picture, I think it was closer to three-fourths. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't really say how he got that conclusion. But I guess it, it seems like he, he measured the, the fluids in the vehicle. And the picture next to this paragraph, Lance, does, uh, it is a straight on shot, sort of the driver's shot. And it does appear like there's a full tank. Like the line is all the way over, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. It definitely shows that it's a full tank in this picture. But all of the other indicators are down at their lowest level, like the RPMs, the, the RPMs, the speed, and the what looks like the oil or the battery level is all the way down to um zero but the fuel i'm just i i'm thinking this is just a broken fuel indicator because the car's not on you'd have to turn the car on for the fuel indicator to 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 function okay so yeah so i guess the the question is why is the fuel gauge um all the way at the top uh when the car is not on i i gotta go with it's a faulty fuel gauge because it can't sit there for that long and gain fuel well it didn't gain but well we we know from the other reports that it had three quarters of a tank and this one it shows that it's at full no no we we had based that on a on an angled picture um where the fuel tank looked 
about three-fourths, at least three-fourths full, I would say. Um, I think that was just based on that angled photo. I don't Just based on, like, the angle of the photo. Yeah. Yeah, I still got to say that this is, if this report was done in 2010 and that's six years later, I just don't see the same amount of fuel being in the car. I believe gas evaporates. And even in the gas tank, it's going to evaporate. So I, I just don't see it staying at, at full. So I, that's that's my vote. I, I think this is a, I think this is a broken gauge. <laughs>